This podcast is brought to you by the Dunfield Retirement Residence, a casually elegant retirement community located at Young and Eglinton in the heart of Midtown Toronto. Customized living options complement your independent, active lifestyle. Learn more at thedunfield.com. Hello, Bonjour High listeners. This week's episode is a little different. We got to sit down with author Michael Frank to talk about his new book, 100 Saturdays, to kick off Holocaust Education Week in a live show in partnership with the Toronto Holocaust Museum held at the Prosserman JCC. 100 Saturdays is a book chronicling Michael's ongoing conversations with Holocaust survivor Stella Levy, a remarkable 100-year-old woman who lived on the island of Rhodes before the war and who spent most of her post-war life in New York. Enjoy. This is Bonjour Chai, the Live from the Toronto Holocaust Education Week edition. I'm Avi Feingold, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltzbovi and special guest Michael Frank. We are your Frozen Chosen. On the show today, we are excited to be partnering with the Prosperman JCC and the Toronto Holocaust Museum to launch Holocaust Education Week here in Toronto. <laughs> Michael. At what point uh, did you uh, become a Rhodes Scholar? Was it with Estella Levy or was it uh, beforehand? Start with the hard questions. Why not? Of course. And thank you, everyone, for coming and for everyone for hosting me this evening. Uh, oh, I'm not a Rhodes Scholar. I'm just every man who, you know, in 2015 sat down at a table in a, at a lecture um, that did, in fact, fittingly have to do with memorials to the Shoah and how they should be erected, maintained, conceived, uh, thought about. And uh, next to me was this distinguished-looking, older than 92-year-old woman. We struck up a conversation, and I found out then and in the following years just how little of a Rhodes Scholar I was, but I became one after knowing her. Her name is Stella Levy. So uh, how old was uh, Stella Levy uh, just before the war, and uh, what was her life like, her daily life? Sure. So we heard a little bit before from the professor. I'll just say just a couple of things for context, which is Stella was born uh, and grew up in the Juderia, which was the Jewish neighborhood uh, on the island of Rhodes. It was never a ghetto. It's where the Jews lived and had lived for half a millennium. Um, They were Sephardic, so they'd come from Spain. They'd lived there probably from the late 1400s consistently. There had been Jews who were not Sephardic and some who were Sephardic, even predating them, but that was the main uh, feeding into that community. Um, Stella was a remarkable young woman, curious, an outsider and an insider, which gave her a special point of view. She was ambitious. Um, She didn't want to sit there and embroider her trousseau at 15 like her older sister's. Uh, She had a number of them, and all the other young girls in the community. She wanted to see the world, to be educated, to have adventures. She had them. They just weren't the ones she expected. Yeah, well, what I really, one of the many things that's really great about your book is you really do get to meet all these personalities. Um, Stella and her sisters are all just these very, very different types of people, and, you know, like like you meet... uh, today. Um, but when, when did you realize that there was a book there? When did that... Well, that's the question, too. I mean, we, we started talking, and uh, I write about it in the book. Maybe you'll read it, and then you'll find out exactly what happened. But she enticed me with a story that first night. Uh, we were strangers, and I was a stranger to this, this subject matter. I never would have written such a book. I'll never write one again. It, it happened to me, which is a very interesting thing, I think. Um, sh- 
through a friend that we had in common. I was put in touch with her. She basically summoned me to her apartment in the neighborhood in Greenwich Village that first Saturday and then began to give me little bits and pieces of her life. I, I call her a modern-day Scheherazade. She would tell me a little bit about her life and then stop abruptly and say, see you next week. And she kept me going that way for five years, six years. And... Um, and never ever finished anything, even after the book was published, she started telling me all the really sexy stories, knowing that I would not be able to write about them but in can public. Can you talk about them at this event, perhaps? Absolutely not, she'd kill me. She's still with us, 100 years old and very vibrant. And I always like to say when I can that my book that I did eventually write out, eventually I'll answer your question, sorry about that, Phoebe, but um, is a portrait, my portrait of Stella, my interpretation. It's a story that was told to me in Italian, a language that we shared, the language in which she was educated because uh, Rhodes was an Italian colony and had been officially from 1923 earlier, one in the Italo-Turkish War of 1911-1912, officially the year Stella was born, 1923, it became Italian, though she grew up speaking Judeo-Spanish or Ladino in shorthand, it was the language she was most comfortable with. And so we spoke in Italian, and a year went, no, two months went by, three months, four months, five months, six months. She never wanted to talk about, interesting in the context in which we find ourselves, what happened during the war to her. She refused, in fact, to talk about it, period, and only agreed to after I listened for two years to the story of her coming of age in this remarkable community. When did I always going to write a book? It took a long time like two years. I was just there captivated and listening. It just happened. So one of the things that I find fascinating, first of all, I'm, I've, as I was reading this book, the thing that really struck me is that we're stereotypically, and this book really shows that this is not always true, or this is a lie almost, that stereotypically when you think of survivors, when you think of the Holocaust, you we have this image of these like faded black and white, if anything's dark, it's bleak, it's Eastern Europe. We never think that there are people that were in Auschwitz that were from the middle of the Mediterranean, basically. Um, and that that too was something that was, you know, there, and that that's this new lens that we're able to like shine a light on in terms of like Holocaust education or understanding what it is. Um, to go one step further than that, uh, what do you think the role is of taking one life of somebody and then presenting it in this, like, it was a gem of a book. It's such a beautifully written, to, instead of saying that this is just another survivor testimony, because this clearly isn't that, what's the, the function, right, when it comes to Holocaust education to be able to take these stories and present them to the public in such a way? That's two questions in one. That's true. Number one. Um, it's a bonjour high special. I, I, I can see me. that. Um, <laughs> Stella grew up in what I like to call the Malibu of the Mediterranean. She was a beach bum. She spent her entire summers by the water. She was an incredible swimmer. She learned the crawl when it was first introduced in that, in that water. She, she was an expert diver. She chatted with everyone on the beach. She ate ice cream. She sunbathed. Um, she, was, she was modern. She was like a kid growing up in California, where I grew up. I could respond to that. I know what it is to love and live by the water. This is not what we think of when we think of the Holocaust, of course. Um, Stella got caught up in history. That community got absorbed in a story that had absolutely nothing in a way to do with them. And we can talk about what that means in a minute. Uh, but everything to do with the story, ultimately, of, of the Holocaust, because that's just what it did, whether it was Stella Levy in the far remote eastern Mediterranean, virtually Turkey, or and a, a, a young woman in Poland, or 
a young woman in Germany or in France or in Italy, all normal, ordinary people got caught up in extraordinary moments. And it's Stella's ordinariness in a way, even though she was very different in her context, but she was ordinary in the sense that she was just a young woman. And I think, for me, just telling that story, just saying this happened to this woman is sufficient. There's the added plus, the other thing, rather, to, to say, which is that the story of the Sephardim during the war years and what happened to them is much less acknowledged, studied, reflected upon. It's likely a, really a matter of math because there were so many fewer of them. But it's also a woman's story, and women's narratives are often, I think, uh, or have not been, let's say historically, um, given quite the weight and the prominence and focus uh, that, that men's were. And it's far time, you know, on many on many levels, for this kind of story to be to be heard. Eighty years after, I should say, next year is 80, the 80th anniversary of the, depo the deportation from Rhodes, which was in July of '44. We're still finding out that there's a lot that we need to think about and talk about and and pay attention to. Yeah, so um, it, it is a woman's story, a woman who had a, a lot of uh, fun on the beach uh, with some. Italian men. It was a, a exciting read. Among other uh, things, yeah. A lot of things happened. Um, but uh, so this is going to be a little, a little less upbeat. But uh, but so speaking to survivors and hearing their testimony is the only way to know really what daily life in the Holocaust was like. But survivors were just numerically, you know, I mean, they were the exceptions. Survivor stories involve horror, but also, in a certain sense, in the contextual sense, unusual good luck. And I was wondering how you approach um, this when writing on the topic, um, because it, it does come up in the book a bit. Yeah. Sure. Um, I'm just going to circle back for one second, because uh, it, it's, I do want to emphasize again something that I learned from Stella. You know, I came in, I knew she wanted to talk. She'd never, she had spoken about her experiences. She'd participated in documentaries. She'd written little bits and pieces of things. But she'd never sat down and told her story from beginning to end. And that's what I proposed to her after I got to know her. But she, as I said earlier, was very disinclined. In fact, would not agree to speak about the Holocaust at first. And I really learned a lot about her, a lot from her from this. Um, I learned that the context, and this is a different part of context, and I'll get to yours in a minute, is so fundamental because knowing who Stella was in the round, knowing what that world was that she was born into, knowing who her parents, siblings, and friends were, what they ate, what music they listened to, how they liked to swim, as I said, dive, dance, have parties, um, understand, understanding the... the both the limitations and the openness of her horizons growing up in a crossroads and on an island helped me, I think, eventually be able to, I hope, embrace then what happened to her, embrace in the sense of meaning capture in a way that felt uh, um, authentic and accurate insofar as it can be accurate at a remove of, we're talking seven and eight decades now. Um, so that when we come to this other this question that you're raising, which is such a key one, and, and it's one that I discuss in the book too, when I, finally it strikes me that um, you know Stella's relationship with her own storytelling becomes very challenged when she comes to talk about what happened in the camps, because 
one of the first things she said to me, and one of the most resonant was, that shortly upon her arrival there, she separated from the Stella of Rhodes. The Stella of Auschwitz was somebody else. So exploring that somebody else with yet another Stella, the Stella of modern day New York, is a very sensitive and tricky and complicated endeavor. And to the question that I think you're asking, the why of it and the how of it, her survival, there is no simple or straightforward answer. She talks about fuerte, uh, sorry, suerte luck. Um, and I've spoken to various Holocaust scholars who said to me, they all talk about luck, you know, because there's no way to explain. And yes, you can look back over the building blocks, the crumbs along the path that led Stella to her survival, and you can say this explained them, but in the end, maybe you can't. You know. I don't think this explains it at all, but I'm, you know, I, I couldn't help but, but think about how the, the suddenness of it, right, which is, again, a hallmark of what happened to the Jews in Rose, right, that there was no moment in, you know, there was no Beer Hall Putsch, there was no Kristallnacht, there was no, uh, you know, the annexation of, you know, uh, of Poland. No, no stars, no ghetto. Nothing. nothing. And then all of a sudden, literally within a matter of six months, Right, you go from virtually nothing to being on a train to Auschwitz. Really, two days, honestly. Meaning that there were racial laws, there were some moments that were, like you said, little, little bits, but the suddenness of it and her awareness that, and she mentions at some point in the book, that like the, uh, the, the modernity, right, which saved her was also the modernity that brought along, brought, brought about the Holocaust. Are, are you suggesting, about, are you saying that because they didn't, I'm going to use this word very, very, very cautiously, Please. suffer. You know, like they weren't... No, I just think it was so sudden. There was no, well, like... Are you saying they weren't worn down by... Yeah. It's not, there was no 10 plus 15 years of, like, thinking about this and this inevitability that, like, it happened. And then it was also, again, I'm not... There's no excuses. There's no suffering. There was so brief... Uh, the amount of time that was there, but I just, and, and it's again, there were people that clearly died, you know, at that time, but I just, I was struck by, that was one of the hallmarks of this story, and the story of the Jews of Rhodes, it, is that it, this happened so quickly, and it was so modern, and it was so um, there, that uh, you must make I, I something I think I would it. say maybe to that, I mean, it's an interesting thought, but I think we have to rewind just a minute to 1938, when Mussolini issues the racial laws, which do dreadful thing to the, things to the Jews, as a citizen of Italy, they are citizens of Italy, they are stripped of their civil rights. Her father has to take on an Italian business partner. Jewish doctors can only see Jewish patients. Jewish, Jewish authors born in a certain period are banished from schools. Jewish professors, actors, writers, politicians, gone, gone, gone. Stella Levy, about to enter high school, her dream to go to the competitive high school that very few young women in her community attended, her older sister Felicie, the intellectual setting that example, she did. Stella arrives at the, basically, in, a, in essence, at the gates of the high school. The racial laws are issued and promulgated, and she is forbidden from attending high school. She describes this as the worst injury, of psychological injury of her life. So you can't say that they were not suffering as Jews in this context. You can say they were not put into a ghetto. They were not constrained to wear uh, Jewish stars. They did go back to the beach. They did, though having been forbidden from the beach and from the cinema, go to the movies. So the life in Rhodes was very different. It was so far away. It was unpoliced, even after the Germans took the island in the fall of 43. They, though they were afraid, they still lived 
with very strong quotation marks, normal lives. Mm -hmm. So maybe there is something to what you say, but the thing I would add, and that I think is so important to say about the, particularly the young people, they are the ones who survived. They were a population of approximately, let's say 1,700 people, 10% of them survived the camps. Um, and they were the young, obviously. Stella grew up in this community, in, in you have to kind of picture this, this uh, the beautiful sun-baked island where life is led very much out of doors. People live in around courtyards with doors and windows open. They know everything about each other, so there's positive in that and negative if you're a young woman who, as Phoebe pointed out, might want to go out with an Italian Catholic soldier. Not doesn't go down so easily. But what does happen is that you're used to forming strong bonds with your community. And when you take pluck five girls, in the case of Stella, her sister Renee, her cousin um, Sara Notrika, and two of their friends, and they make a, a group of five in Auschwitz, they know how to look out for each other and look after each other. And that's the thing that I've thought retrospectively about more maybe than what you bring up, um, this idea of not having you know, suffered for those years, is that they were in a, some weird way primed uh, to bond, and that bonding proved to be essential. Again, I'm not here to explain. I can't explain. Uh, yeah, I, there's there's no explanation. There's only speculation. There's only thinking about these things, and that's it. Um, the the life afterwards also is so fascinating that she's able. And again, maybe because that was my thought that it was so brief, this trauma that happens that the integration. And again, it's not easy, but it sounds easier than some of the testimonies that you read about the people that were lost for decades that just couldn't deal in a, uh, is that just the wonderful prose or is that, you know, or is that actually? I would hesitate to say that. I would hesitate to say that so of anyone yeah. who arrives in Auschwitz and has her parents, her uncle, her cousin with the baby in her arms and has them all plucked away and, immur and murdered immediately. I would be I'm very hesitant to say that one re you know, resets one's life with ease. One does not. I sure, 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 sure. I just takes different. Yeah, yeah. It's a you know every story is is individual and and the repercussions of these experiences I needn't say in this in this context, but uh, I mean are are uh, very individual and and infinite really. So. Um, yeah. So uh, Stella Levy uh, repeats uh, her bafflement that even once they'd clearly lost the war, the Nazis uh, continued rounding up even far flung Jews. Um, she has, so how does she explain it, and how, really, how, how can we explain it? We can't. Right? Well, how can yeah. we? The, we can say things like the Nazi machine was in place, but you have to imagine what this is. Let's try to put ourselves in that context. It's July of 1944. Rhodes is Italian. The Allies in Italy, in mainland Italy, have recaptured Rome. They're on the way to Florence. They're defeating the Germans. They are losing. This is a country they will lose. This is a war they will lose. And yet still, still, they send a, a, mess, a person, someone in person flies from Athens to Rhodes and says to General Kleeman, who's in charge there, we want these Jews too. We want these Jews. We want these 1,700, as Stella puts it, largely old people because the, and, and young women. The young men had previously and, and left to go seek their fortunes abroad because Rhodes was suffering economically. You send the boys to America, to Cape Town, to the Congo. Get rid of them as fast as 
you can. Have them go set up beachheads, make money, come back for a nice girl to marry from Rhodes. Never at her choice, of course. But there was always matchmaking involved, and take it, let her take, let her go off with him, which is what happened to several of Stella's siblings, older sisters. You're taking the old people and the young women. She, Stella herself has said to me, and says has said not only to me, they might as well have just murdered us where we were. Why waste the money? Bury us with our with our ancestors on this island. But I think you answered it with that that maybe right that you said at the beginning, where uh, it was a machine, right? And this is a perfectly oiled, precision German engineering machine of hatred. And when that machine is just rolling, and they, they know they're losing, but, but it's not about loss, right? As she says, right? She talks about the hate, right? And you're not, that's the one the lesson she wants everybody to know. Don't hate. Uh, don't, don't take somebody else's idea about God, even though it's very important, and, and to not disparage somebody else's perception or somebody else's important idea. When you have this machine that is specifically rolling, right, to use that imagery, and it's, it's the Audi of hate, Right, that is just going to keep going and going and, and keep, you know, as long me, as you keep the, the oil changes going, you're going to find the last bits of people that you can take care of. As you said, you, you should have done it just on the spot there, but that's just the way they know how to do it. Michele Sarfatu is one of the uh, leading scholars of, uh, of Italian uh, wartime history, particularly uh, Italian Jewish history. I heard him saying in, in a lecture in New York, one evening at which Stella was present, so like a double haunting, really, um, that, that Rhodes for him was, was probably the most vivid example of the absurdity of the Nazi program. Mm -hmm. You know, I say it in the book. And to hear this man who spent his entire life studying firsthand sources, primary sources, to come to that conclusion with Stella, one of the handful of survivors still alive in that room, was really incredibly profound and... It seems to me to be the statement. I know? have a German watch, right? It's right here. It's keeping us on my podcast timing, right? It is a precision machine that needs plus or, five, plus or minus five seconds a year. That's what I'm told, right? It's absurd that I need that, but that's sometimes what happens when you take engineering to the nth degree. All right. I, <laughs> there, there's one more thing to say while we're on Please. this, this the, dar the darker of our moments here. I hope it's here. about Avi's watch. <laughs> yes, and we'll move on. Well, this is about time in a funny way as well. How did those Germans who were only recently governing the island of Rhodes, which is to say the fall of 43, they were just busily trying to figure out uh, who their enemies were. They were vastly outnumbered on the island by the Italian military. So when they first took the island, they were, um, spent a lot of their time and energy getting rid of these Italian soldiers so there wouldn't, the island wouldn't be taken back from them. A lot of sending these soldiers away to prisoner of war camps, etc. When they did, when they were tasked with this all-important job of rounding up and deporting these 1,700-plus old people and young women, how did they know where to find them? Because uh, I should also say that at the island was being bombed at that time by the Allies. The Juderia, which was near the port, was often a target. So most of the Jews who had still who still lived in the historic. <laughs> uh, within the town walls and the historic part of the island had moved to the villages, how did they find them? So about 10 years ago, um, in a police office on the island of Rhodes, a, a door was unlocked and a filing cabinet behind it was unlocked, or more than one really, in which they discovered, were discovered 90,000 documents, Italian bureaucratic documents, um, chronicling their administration of the island unofficially again from 1912, officially from 1923 through time present, through, through the end of the war. And um, 
two scholars spent a lot of time reading through those documents, and uh, one of them, Professor Clemente, came to the conclusion and found the documents supporting this, that it was the Italian Carabiniere who supplied the, they had been surveying, surveilling, and keeping track of, like a good fascist state, their Jewish and Greek and Turkish, but in this case with great, grave consequences, their Jewish population. And so they gave these names to the Germans. And so, you know, yes, it's a, it's a late in the war moment, it's absurd, uh, but they weren't, it wasn't only Germany responsible, the Italians helped deliver these Jews to their captors and to their deaths. Um, so on that note, uh, there's an example you give in the book of another area that, in Greece, um, so uh, where the Nazis came for the Jews and two uh, non-Jewish town leaders uh, said that they were the town, the mayor and who was the other one? Uh, uh, the bishop, the bishop, I think, yeah. So that they were the only two Jews and that saved uh, like 275 who had, who um, were hidden. actual yeah. Jews. Yeah. Um, and this struck me as especially poignant now uh, in the context of non-Jews often um, saying they want to be allies to the Jewish community uh, in Toronto and elsewhere in this time of uh, perhaps, one might say, rising anti-Semitism. I don't know. Uh, just a thought. Just uh, a thought, right? Just a thought just I've had, had a hunch. from reading the news and existing in this world. Um, and uh, But not necessarily wanting to take a risk to do so, and it's not necessarily clear what what that would even mean in this context. But I guess what I'm wondering is what, if any, like how would you, how do you relate what you wrote about, learned about so deeply to our times now? Easy question for you to just. Exactly, I and you know like it's one I'm gonna answer very carefully. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that uh, what we saw in early October was an act of, of terrorism, uh, of course, and, and anti-Semitism, and that is to be fought against at every turn. Um, how it is to be fought against is open for a much more complicated conversation than we could probably have here tonight. Um, but just walking through the museum uh, earlier, when I came this evening, it was... Uh, it has a different resonance, I'm going to say right now. You know, we're seeing blue and white stars being stenciled on French businesses in my beloved second country, so to speak, of Italy. Uh, we're seeing enormous protests. We're seeing anti-Semitic language. And um, the world is, uh, Roger Cohen, as you pointed out earlier, has written a piece about this in the Times today. The world is shape-shifting in ways that we are, cannot see, I think. It's happening so quickly. Um, the imbalance of protest, the, the degree of vitriol, um, the lack of um, historical context and understanding are all very, very striking to me, um, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like I think it's important what you're doing to humanize and sort of give individual uh, portraits of um, people who both survived the Holocaust and the people they knew. I feel like at this time, what I just keep thinking is this is important even if it doesn't have an instrumental function. I mean, I, I hope it does, but even if anti-Semites are going to be anti-Semites, at least the stories still matter, basically. I don't, I don't know if I'm making any sense I, I agree that. with you. But I mean, I think, I think we have to be... The trouble with the rhetoric is that it, it de-specifies de the individual, of course, for all the obvious reasons, but... As you said, I think you asked earlier, like, what is the purpose of a book like this, really? What is the purpose of, in 2020, 
three. Uh, how many more testimonies can we hear? How many more such books, whatever that means? And, I, and my answer to that is as many people who have stories uh, and have people to tell them to have, have books to be written and read and thought about. I think Stella is a great example, exemplar of that. Again, returning to the themes of the Sephardim, of Rhodes, of Italy, of, um, of Turkey, of geography, of vibrant youth, you know, of modernity. I mean, we talked, we haven't really talked about this, but Stella grew up in a world that, I, as I often like to say, had like two feet in the 19th century and the third foot, if one could, in, in, the, in the 20th. And what that meant, what that meant as a young Jewish woman, what that meant as a woman, what that meant on a, as an islander, all of that has such consequence when you really pause to listen, so. Yeah. There is a moment, though, in the book when you ask Stella this, and she berates you, not berates you, but I don't know her relationship with you, but there's this moment she goes, but, but you don't understand. We didn't know. You're looking backwards, and we weren't. Yes, yes. And I think that that's such a powerful moment because there are times when I think we're too often stuck looking backwards. And... Books like this, while they're so important, and museums like this, they're so important, how do you balance the fear of looking backwards too often with the, well, sometimes you have to use the, back, the history to understand what's happening in the present. And I wonder about these moments, and there's clearly, I'm not saying that there's no rising anti-Semitism right now at all, please. But um, how do we balance this, these ideas that these stories are so important with this fear that sometimes we're gonna use them to look backwards too quickly, too much? I don't know if I can answer that. You know, I, what I can say is that I think we need to recognize our own stupidity sometimes. Stella was very good at making me recognize mine. <laughs> um, and in that question, which I asked her many, many times, because for me, it, it, and I really, it was, this was a very humbling experience on many, many levels. And one of them was to, coming to the recognition that I am a product of where and when I was born, not in all the obvious ways that, that we know, um, and what would what would and we might immediately say of ourselves, but I'm so much a product of what I've learned in my life that I had to unlearn to really hear Stella's story. I had to unlearn everything, and I had to try to think in very different terms. And one of those terms meant trying to imagine myself into uh, a, a youth. Uh, on a remote island under a fascist dictatorship that was controlling the press. So they did not have a free press, as there may not be free presses in other contexts of the world right now. You know, Ukraine and Russia were a great example earlier on. You know, why were the Russian people not knowing what was, how come they didn't know what was happening in Ukraine? They also live under a censored press, you know, and Stella didn't know, her family didn't know because they had limited information. It doesn't mean they hadn't heard about what was happening to the Jews. It just, they, they didn't, this was also before the final solution and just in the beginning of it, um, as news began to come through, but they didn't also, they had their own stupidity about the, where they were in the context of, of the world. They, they were Jewish, but they were Judeo-Spanish, Sephardic, Turkish, Rodizli, Italian Jews, who We're wanted different them. than anybody else. Exactly. Why would anybody care We're about different. us? We're yeah. different. Exactly. That's happening to those Jews over there. I mean, this is something that could be quite sobering for us if we wanted to really think about it now. That is happening to those faraway Jews. You know, that's what they thought. And I understand now how they thought that. You know, I, I, it's, 
I understood listening to Stella. The, the, the metaphor of the, the frog, the boiling the frog, right, that you, the water is boiling, it's not really a true metaphor. The, the, the science behind this isn't true, but everybody knows the idea of the boiling the frog, right? You, uh, the water's fine until you're dead, right? And with, with her, the, the, the way that you describe it is so vivid of like, everything was, we didn't know, we didn't know, we didn't know, and you really believe it. And then she even second guesses herself at some points about that. But, but I think that it's easy to really get this sense of we didn't know from this specific form of story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was just going to say another thing that I'm just thinking of now in terms of a, another value of a story like this is the way that um, I've seen just events in the Middle East get kind of funneled into like kind of culture wars in North America in ways that I personally do not find especially productive because contexts are specific. And even if you think the answer, even if you think the morality of it is not complicated, everybody, you know, has their own thoughts on these things, but um, contexts are specific and people are coming from things. If you want to understand a situation, you have to understand the specificity of it. And I think that, that a, a book like this was really, I mean, the specificity is, it's all about the specificity. Yeah. I think it, it kind of goes back to what I said earlier, which is I think we all need to reside a little more in our stupidity, you know, to unlearn things or to try to learn things. It's a combination of the two. And that's not what's happening on campuses. People are very quick right now to solidify positions. Um, and I, what you can see how they get there, but I don't think they're getting there always in the, in the, in a way that honors the quality of education they should be having and pursuing, you know, that's... If there's one thing, you know, Stella talks about how she should have been, you know, much more learned and much more academically approached. Um, I think if there's one thing that she is teaching the world, if they can all read this book, is is don't look don't look at other people's opinions in a negative way and don't hate them for it. Yeah. And, and that's not happening on campus, right? Yeah. On whatever side we're on, right? There are people that will openly disparage, you know, either side and uh it's, and the, rapid it's the, the rapidity with which you know i think that yeah. that's what i think we're all a little bit shell-shocked at the moment because it's the events the news cycle and the response to are happening at a, at a pace that are, is unprecedented as far as i can tell yeah, yeah. Speaking of shell shock, if I can move that back in a little bit of a different direction um i was fascinated by the uh, the therapy that you, that you touch on, that Stella touches on briefly, and mm -hmm. that she went into therapy, but she says she wasn't ready for it. Is there, is there more to that story that isn't showing up in the book that you're able to talk about? Because I, I found that so fascinating that she thought that she was ready, wasn't ready, she thought that she was gonna bracket the Auschwitz part of her life and say that that wasn't me, but then she realizes later on in life that, that it was. Is there, is there more there? Because it, I just found that so, so fascinating. That feels quite personal, I think, to comment on further, other than to say that um, we're talking about the 1950s in America, and, um, and I think that her, um, Stella returned to, sorry, Stella came to an America that uh, was not really equipped to, to hear her story or to... to to help her, you know, uh, she came into a world, including starting in the very specific world of her own family. Um, people, as she talks about this very vividly, they immediately wanted to hear their story, to know who died and when and the facts and figures. But then it was like they couldn't 
deal with it. And as was very typical, this is Stella's not is quite representative, I think. It was about helping them set their lives in motion or reset their lives, find their futures. They wanted them to be tidied up and taken care of. And it it just doesn't work like that, you know. I think we know that now because we have a more idea about the importance of therapy and the talking cure and so on. To her credit, she We're um, looking back on we are looking like again, yeah. exactly. To her credit, she lived in New York City. She was a single woman at that point, and she wanted to know. She wanted to find out what she could. Um, but I think even she wasn't ready, as she says. And so I think it's been a lifelong, it's lifelong. It's just, it's, it's lifelong. Uh, maybe was it perhaps therapeutic talking with you for her? Well, I think there was something of that, more of that in our, our, in our relationship than I was trained for. Um, or prepared for. I did wonder about that. Yeah, uh, but I think, you know, insofar as listening is curative, I think I was a pretty decent listener and um, a patient one. I learned a lot of patience. I learned how, not at the beginning, because I wasn't very good at the beginning, but I eventually learned that sometimes you don't ask the questions you want to ask and just see what someone wants to tell you and, and take, take away some lessons from that. Uh, very difficult for a it's a skill that like will me. take me decades as a podcaster to finally figure out. <laughs> yeah, well, interviewing is is um, partly about silence. You know, if we have if we have the courage, no silence in radio. <laughs> no, but very powerful when it's there. Real, yes. You know? So has she read the book? And uh, I would assume, uh, yeah. And what what does she make of it? Well, Stella, of course. Um, I, I uh, read the book and I read it to her uh, and. Oh, she was brutal. She's like, that's so boring. And I'm like, but you told me this story, you know? And, and the, the fascinating thing about that process was that um, in reading it to her, and then, and then she would, I would read her a chapter and leave it for her, and then she'd make notes, and then we'd go over it. Because so I obviously wanted her to feel, take as much ownership as she could over a book of which I am still the author, and I've had to interpret, metabolize, absorb, and retell her story, but I wanted it to be as accurate as I could, is that she would give me more and more after that. So it's like once you put together the bones and structure of a story, um, and once, you, I suppose from her point of view, once you look at what you've said, um, you realize what you haven't said. And there's the fact, that this is also very interesting, I think, which is that, um, the, and she said that to me, um, the more she remembered, the more she could remember. And, and telling a story then, and going away from it and coming back to it, she would add things. Music was very, very important in the book. Um, very important in her childhood. Multilingual, growing up hearing the Spanish romanzas, which were basically songs from the 1400s that they the, the ancestors brought with them at the mothers and grandmothers saying to their children, to the babies, the Italian music that was brought when the Italians came and, and opened up the whole culture of the island. French music, because before the Italians, there was the Alliance Francaise Israelite, which would, ran the school system there. So her older siblings spoke uh, French and sang in French. Her mother knew Greek songs. Her father knew Turkish songs. Everyone knew liturgical Hebrew and sang the prayers. And so as she would go back in time, she would sing some of these things for me. And when she didn't remember a lyric, I would Google it. And this is the great advantage of doing this in, the, in time present. And there we'd be able to listen to a song and then she'd have more memories. And so all of this is to say that her response to the book ended up enriching the book as far as I can say. So, so what did this book do to you as an author, as a person? 
Is this affected all your future projects or? <laughs> um, absolutely. Um, well, it made me a better listener, I think, as I said. It made me very conscious in a way that will never, as long as I live, diminish of um, the centrality. I mean, it's hard to say that I wasn't before, but I have a map of the war in my mind in that period so clearly now that wherever I go, it's involuntarily activated, let's say, if I'm in a museum and see a painting by Matisse from July of 1944, as happened to me about a year ago, I, I stop and think, so he's sitting there in the south of France painting naked girls, and she's being put on a boat to go to Auschwitz, and I can't reconcile that, you know. Um, I've written about my family. I, um, I'm haunted by both of my grandmother's lives. I was never able to do this kind of prolonged oral history or debriefing of them because they died when I was basically a child, although I was a curious child and had already started to take notes on them. Uh, I think that what, where this book has led me is to um, my next projects, which will be exploring the lives of still more powerful, fascinating, and compelling women, and my, my two grandmothers. Um, so still on the book, um, I love Myra Kalman. Uh, how did that happen? For those of you who are listening or haven't seen the book yet, uh, it's wonderfully illustrated, um, which again makes that whole Mediterranean beauty color alive in a way. And that's, in fact, that's one of the main reasons. Thank you for starting it there. But um, yeah, I mean, so in order to answer that question, don't I think buy the audiobook. Get the book with <laughs> yes, the pictures. Get the paper cups yes, book so you can good. see it. Um, Myra made 12 really beautiful paintings uh, for the book. How and why? Can I buy one of them? Are they available? You have they're them? Not, they're, I, I definitely do not have them. I have a postcard I can send you, though. Um, she, and I think in order to really answer this question, I just have to, I have to wind back for a moment, and, 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 and we haven't said it before, but and, and to try to define what kind of book this is. You know, um, It's not easy, and it wasn't easy for me, and really only until I came to the end did I have a sense of it. It's not a biography because I'm not that sort of writer or a work of history because I'm not a historian, though I read and learned everything I could uh, about the period and the setting. And um, It's not an as-told-to book because that's simply not the sort of writer I am. Um, it's not a memoir because I'm not the protagonist. And so what is this thing that I made? It's you know? prose. That's all it it's is. It's prose. Yes, it's prose. It's an encounter is the word I've ended up with. It's an encounter between an Ashkenazi Jew and a Sephardic Jew. It's an encounter between a really old woman who's lived a very long and rich and complicated life and a somewhat younger man whose life is not as long or rich or complicated. It's a, an encounter between a Californian and a, and a, and a Rodezli, between, importantly, a man and a woman, and um, between two storytellers, I think, also. And so a dance of storytelling emerges. Um, it's an encounter, and I like to call it that because it feels it frees, if I like it, frees me of a certain responsibilities, but also it's not simply a, testimo a, testim a testimony e either. Uh, it's not simply a survivor story. It ranges. It is an encounter of mine with Stella, Stella with her past, me with Stella's past, me with history, her with history, because she spent a lot of her life thinking about her past. And so the images then? How would you <laughs> illustrate an encounter? You know, what would you do? 
you would think the, the fallback position would be to put photographs in. But what photographs would you be putting in? What photographs would you have of a young woman who was deported to Auschwitz? Her, her album, the family album, didn't get packed and survived in the luggage. The pictures that did survive were sent abroad to family or to, were taken abroad with these older siblings who left. So what Stella has in her possession is a very spotty record of her past. She's a baby. She's two. She's seven. She's 14. She's 21 with gaps. And so I thought, well, if I'm having this encounter with Stella, wouldn't it be interesting if there were a visual encounter? And I did tell the story to Myra, whom I knew, and, and she said immediately, I, I would love to make paintings based on this. She, she's fascinated by the period. She was born in Israel. She knows what it feels like, what the light is like in the East, in the Middle East. And so she sat down with the array of photographs that, we, that Stella had and some that were collected by her uh, very gifted archivist, second cousin, I think he is, Aaron Hasson in Los Angeles, and she made a selection, we made a selection together, and then she did what she does, which is work her magic. Made, she had her encounter, and she was able to do where you began, uh, you know, the things I couldn't do. I couldn't give you, I don't think ever to that degree, the vibrancy, the color, the sense of the, of, of, of the fertility of the island. I couldn't exaggerate the bows in the girl's hair or the flowers on the Sukkot or the rest of it, but Myra with her, her touch was able to do that, and I think in, a, in an interesting way, gave, gave us, gives us roads, you know, gives us a version of roads, as my book is a version of Stella, but hers is very, very powerful and visceral almost. Are there uh, any moments that got left on the cutting room floor that are uh, worth sharing with us here? I, I love this, this one page with such name dropping. I'm not going to tell you any of the names, but you should read them for the one page of name dropping. Um, and there's got, I'm sure, been other stories that were like that that just didn't fit in and uh, that are worth grabbing here. You know, I, I could have written a book four times as long. And I this is also by intent. Uh, I wanted it to be a book that entered into a conversation about time because time is so important in, the, in a life of a, Stella's is 100 now. Um, but time is really also a topic here. The amount of time I spent with Stella, the way time seemed to stop when I was with Stella. I would go and sit in her apartment and I would, there's a big clock as people get older, sometimes they need those clock dials a bit bigger, staring me at the face and I would look at it, it would be three, and then I'd look at it, it would be five, and I didn't know how that happened because I felt, fell under her spell. And I really wanted the reader to fall under a similar spell. And for me, that meant 100 chapters following the purported 100 Saturdays. There were more, there were Tuesdays and Thursdays, which I left on the cutting room floor. Um, but I wanted a similar sense of time travel, quite literally, uh, to happen in that book, and I didn't answer your question, but I like my answer anyway. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> On that note, though, um, I highly encourage everybody listening uh, and listening here in the audience to uh, pick up the book, go read it. It's such an easy, it was so readable, so beautiful, so poignant. An easy read about the Holocaust. Now, how yeah, often I know. do we hear that? <laughs> Not very often. Um, Michael, it's been wonderful talking, and uh, I really uh, hope... I can't wait to see what the next project is, but this one will stay with me for a very, very long time. Yeah, fascinating book. It's really well-written. Really, thank you so much for writing it. Thank you for having me and for everyone and for turning for out tonight. Thank you so much. Hi. 
Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcast is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour. And you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It is always one of the best ways we get new listeners. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. The Dunfield Retirement Residence offers customized living options to complement your independent active lifestyle. Welcome home. Welcome to the Dunfield. Visit us at thedunfield.com to book a personal tour.